welcome to Cinematic Release. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and today my guest is Thad. Say hello, Thad. Hello. And we're going to be talking about two movies, uh, Thin Blue Line, a documentary by Errol Morris, 1988, and 2012's Jack Reacher by Christopher McQuarrie. Um, just real quick, Thad, have you seen either one of these movies before? Uh, I'd seen Thin Blue Line a few times before. I uh, I hadn't seen Jack Reacher because I, I didn't really know anything about it when it came out. I was like, it's Tom Cruise, it's whatever. And I didn't find out till later that it was connected to like you know a very sort of pulpy series of of books. That now that I've watched it, I may have to run up because man, this movie is pulp as hell. <laughs> it is. But before we get to that, let's go back to Thin Blue Line. <laughs> um. The theme of today's episode, because I'm going to try to retool the podcast a little instead of just talking about just two movies. Mm. We'll still talk about two movies, or at least one, and just try to talk about the themes that connect the movies. Right. uh, And this particular is the system, uh, the failures of systems. Okay, I'm 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 glad to like that was my the- that was my theory because on the the write up sheet you you gave it the title I believe Innocence Abroad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which which me being a Mark Twain dork I was like I don't see the connection but uh, <laughs> fine. <laughs> well, they're both travelers and innocence is a pivotal point in both of them, but that's beside the point. That was just me wanting to make a, 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 I mean, no, I, 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 see the tar- I see the connection in literal use of, like, the words of the title, but, it, like, <laughs> me, I'm immediately thinking of, like, what does this have to do with Mark Twain traveling around the world and, like, being judgy toward the dumb people that he's traveling with? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Ah, um, excellent. The, the plot, so to speak, of Thin Blue Line is a documentary essentially about a man who is wrongly convicted of murder, or we, as the documentary hints, is more than likely wrongly convicted of murder. He had after the after the documentary, he was eventually acquitted. And it's just El Morris talking to the people involved, the arresting officers, the judge, the defense attorney, the suspect Randall Adams himself, and mm-hmm. the another suspect. Uh, not in this case, but in another case, and the person who probably more than likely did it, uh, David uh, David Harris. Yeah, the one the one who fingered him essentially. Exactly, and essentially what it is is Randall Adams is a drifter who hitchhikes with his brother to Dallas, looking for a job. They find a job, and one night he runs out of gas, and he gets picked. Uh, while he's going to get gas, he gets picked up by David Harris, and the two spend the night just hanging out. And then after David Harris drops Randall Adams off, David Harris gets pulled over by a cop and kills him. Shoots the cop, drives off, and yet so, so far as so far as we know, like this is the most likely true course of events. To be fair, I mean, but yeah, well, one th- one connection I would make, even though I, uh, despite my enjoyment of podcasts and presently being on one, I think serial. Uh, like this is like serial before serial existed. Like this is looking at a a case like and and sort of unraveling it and trying to find out you know the what particular biases were in play in prosecuting it and all these other factors. Well, yeah. Well, God, this is like uh, this is El Morris's, I believe, third documentary. The first was Gates. Of yeah, it was, it was real early. His first was Gates of Heaven, and the second one was Vernon, Florida. 
And I, well, I think he's just called Gates Vernon. of Heaven, which of course, uh, Gates of Heaven, which of course got Werner Herzog to eat his shoe. <laughs> Real quick, because um, Werner Herzog is also a connecting thread to these movies. <laughs> I know, I love that. Um, Al Morse is a protege of the German director Werner Herzog. And Werner Herzog challenged Al Morse to make a documentary about a pet cemetery. And says, you can't do it. There's nothing interesting about them. If you can do it, I'll eat my shoe. And so Al Morse made Gates of Heaven, which is, quite frankly, one of the most astounding and fascinating documentaries. <laughs> it's one and, of my and, favorite movies ever. And then Werner Herzog not only ate his shoe, but, but recorded, <laughs> yeah, recorded himself eating his shoe and gave like a talk about filmmaking while <laughs> eating his shoe. The documentary, of course, is... Uh, to the point, entitled Werner Herzog is the shoe. Yeah, I, I showed it. Uh, I showed it to my Chinese students when I was teaching <laughs> over there, because <laughs> of course I did. But, uh, but uh, anyway, Thin Blue Line, this, though. Thin Blue Line. Werner, uh, sorry, L. Morris. At this time, L. Morris is a documentarian and a prolific one, but he do- documentaries aren't how he makes his bread and butter. He makes commercials and he does freelance jobs. And at the time that Thin Blue Line, he was actually trying to do a different documentary. He was a private investigator. Wait, er- Errol Morris was? He was, a, he was an actual private investigator. Oh and my he God, was thinking about doing a documentary about the guy who nicknamed Dr. Death, Dr. James Grigson, who was the guy who interviewed Randall Adams and came up with the conclusion that he was a psychopath. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so while looking through the cases of Grigson's, he stumbled upon Randall Adams' case. And the more he looked into it, the more like obsessed he became with it. And so basically he just stopped the Grixon documentary and just became a private eye, literally, and started doing <laughs> research on this. Started hunting down clues, started interviewing people. Yeah. That's, and, uh, well, one of the things I think is interesting juxtaposing him with Herzog, to go back to that, because of course I will, Right. Is the the vocal absence of uh, of Errol Morris in his documentaries? I think the only time we hear Morris's voice is at the end when we're hearing that tape recorded interview between him and Harris. Yeah, it's it's very rare nowadays because most documentarians talk all through the documentaries. Yeah, they 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 take a very like make their own self and viewpoint present in right. like visually and and orally. Morris doesn't do that, and it's sort of striking when you do him, because at first you're like, who is that? And unless you have the (laughs) subtitles on, which I always do, Mm. you're like, who the fuck is uh, David Harris talking to? (laughs) But the the lack of his voice allows a narrative to form by itself through the testimony of all the people he interviews. Yeah, it's a very, like, because of that restriction, like, the way these things have to be woven together is so, like, it's so much different than than what a, I would say, a, a air quotes, traditional document documentary approach. Right. Uh, the way that the way that they use, like, this, this film in particular, I think, the way that they use reenactments is just amazingly, like, it's striking. Uh, like, the different, sort of showing the differences in testimony between like the changes in the car, the changes in who's in the car, even though it's the same shots and they're framed the same and they're paced the same, but we see all these different accounts and it's just, uh, just beautiful. 
the he brings up until this point, like flashbacks are nothing new. But what Morris did for Thin Blue Line is he brought a sort of esoteric imagery into play. Mm. Because there are a lot of images that have nothing to do with the case, but everything to do with what the person is talking about. Right. Like um, when he's talking to the judge of the Randall Adams case, uh, Judge Metcalf, I believe. Hmm. Um, hold on one second, I have him in. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, Judge Metcalf, Don Metcalf. And he's talking about how his father was an FBI man. Yeah. And his father was there when they shot Dillinger. And, and they Morris show all those di- like the Dillinger old, clips. old black and white movie about the killing of Dillinger. Yeah. While listening to Metcalf talk about Dillinger. And document documentarians didn't really do that at this time. And even when he does the flashbacks, there's a hyper-surrealism. There's a hyperactive, stylized surrealism. Too. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, when the first time that we go through the, uh, the sequence of the crime... When the gunshots go off, and each time a gunshot goes, it smash cuts to the autopsy like diagrams of exactly. where each shot hit, and it's just there's this like, it's this weird cross between frenetic and contemplative. I think is the way I was I, I sort of feel it is. <laughs> well, before that, let's use an example because this came out in 1988. There's a documentary called uh, Harlan County, USA, by Barbara Kappel. Hmm. And that came out, I believe, in 1977 or 1978, late 70s. And it's about the miners in Harlan County and the face-off between the miners and the mining company. Mm. And you would do a lot of interviews and there's a lot of footage of the miners. But there's, there's no image that she did not film herself. There's no, like, B-roll or, or right. just archival images or anything like that. And Morris is really... The Thin Blue Line is really the first time this happens. I wouldn't say the first time it happens, but, like, the first time it all melds together successfully. Mm. Kind of like Seven Samurai, in which a bunch of things come together for the first time. Right. And a lot of people, um, Morgan Spurlock, they accredit Thin Blue Line for changing how they see documentaries. And this is... To some extent, when you start seeing documentaries becoming op-ed pieces and less of documentaries, even though Thin Balloon Line itself isn't really an op-ed piece. No. It, it sort of attempts to be this kind of, uh, like, I don't know, his, historical detective, yeah. Right. Well, like I said, it's basically just him working a case. He, like... Yeah. Be- to go in a little bit of detail, Dr. Grigson, the guy who... When Randall Adams is arrested and convicted, they send in Dr. Grixon, who has, I believe, like, 100%... Every person he's ever interviewed is a psychopath. Yeah. And because in Dallas, they have a caveat that you cannot sentence someone to capital punishment or death unless there is a belief that that person will be a violent offender and cause further violent offenses if released. Yeah, and so, and like there's that there's that bit where um, uh, Adams was talking about how, or I think it was Adams was talking about the the fact that, or no, it might have been his lawyer, but yeah, like the fact that of course, like yeah, not showing remorse is uh, a clue that someone is uh, uh, psychopathic, 
but also not showing remorse is something that people who didn't do anything wrong do. Well, that was Adam Adam said that, and it's one because even one of the investigating officers brings up the fact like he didn't even seem sorry for what he did, (laughs) or it could be right, like the 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 fact that there's nope, there's only one interpretation for that. Um, there is a terror in this. And I show, when I showed this to you, I think I showed this to you, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you showed it to me um, years ago. I think this yeah. was the one of the. I think this is one of the first documentaries you showed me when uh, when we started watching movies together. Probably the first one. And it's one of the things. Like I, I said, going in, like there's a Hitchcockian terror to this because Hitchcock has that like innocent man wrongly accused, and this yeah. is innocent man wrongly convicted because. At every turn, you start to see the system failing. Yeah, and there's this sort like of it, growing dread. It's just the the it's it's sort of a, a snowball effect. It's like the aggregation of the limits of a system, like when it gets focused on something, or just the limits of what people are able to do within the the goals and expectations of the system, and all of that, like perfectly lining up to say this guy is guilty. Well, yeah, uh, well, on top of that, like, it's hard for me to say because the Dallas investigators, the crime happens in Dallas. The right. Dallas investigators seem like they, they tried really hard. Like, they, they, they seem like they tried to do a job. Right. And then they go to Detective Sam Kittrell in Vida, Texas. Vida yeah, the is where David oh. Harris lives. Right. And he seems like the most competent detective I've ever seen on film. <laughs> like, just the pure honesty he has and the fact that he can just... I guess because he runs into David Harris so much throughout his life. Just yeah. the way he knows how to deal with David and the fact that like, he's just... He's like the, the type of detective... He's like a screenwriter's wet dream of a detective in terms of how he behaves. <laughs> he very much has that sort of Jack Webb sense of this... These are the facts. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's no flowery language with him, and yet same no, time. No, just all very direct. Yeah. But I like there's a way that Elmore's has of letting his people talk. Which I mean, when when you yourself are not speaking, are, are not letting your side of the conversation happen on camera, is vital to things being able to function. Like just. The like it's set, especially considering the the climate of how we're used to documentaries now. Right. Like the fact that it's all just other people's testimony is still still today is striking. Well, uh, like, and how much he's able, and how much of a of a clear and coherent and and constructed narrative is able to be built by just the viewer listening to that. Right, and even then, like letting people talk without and only like. Interjecting when you have a follow-up question, which is to clarify something, allows mm. little bits of things you don't normally hear in doc, like in other documentaries. Like there's a um, one of the detectives has this line, and the thing that I think we did that really helped, or really it didn't really help anything at all. Let me back up, but it was interesting and it cost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just straight up like this guy and like and anyone else would have like tried to interrupt him it's like what do you mean it didn't and just allowing the line it was interesting and it cost a lot of money I mean, 
It costs money, damn it, and I'll be damned if I don't talk about this. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> well, uh, what he's talking about is the bringing in the hypnotist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, the partner of the murdered cop. Yeah, and like it didn't, it, it ended up like she remembered all these details of uh, a license plate from something that happened earlier that night, but right. nothing else, like nothing directly about this case. The only thing it brought up was the fact that they were looking for a, a Vega, a comma, and not a Vega. Oh. Yeah, that's just. Oh. <laughs> Or, like, when he's talking to Metcalf, and Metcalf is talking about the appeals court and how, in Dallas, they didn't over overturn his ruling, but the Supreme Court did. Right, but then, like, doing the math, and it's, right, like, it's like, well, if you count... <laughs> I was 9-0 correct in Dallas, and in Washington, I was 1-8 correct. So if you tally up all those votes, I come out 10-8. Right, nu- numerically, really, like... <laughs> no, like... That's not how the system works, you jackass. But it, yeah, it's it is a moment that I think yeah you're you're spot on. Like it would not occur if it was just the if we if we kept in the like the back and forth that you hear in more more right, like, modern documentaries. Like because Morris because Morris is interested in the facts, but he also just likes letting people talk and come up with these little gems and exposing both who they are <laughs> and like little things that even you yourself wouldn't have guessed. Because uh, I don't. I mean, know there's also have... a lot of. Oh. Go ahead. Oh, well, no, one of the other things I was going to say, just in terms of letting people talk, uh, we're not most of the time introduced to the people speaking. Like, there's not, uh, there's not a, here, here is this person. Right. Uh, and there's, there, there's no, like, overlay text in the way that, like, you know, a lot of, again, like, documentaries now, there will be a lot of, um, cap, like, I forget, the, like, little captions and things saying, yeah, like, oh, this is. Yeah, like, a little lettering ad. Yeah, like a, in a in a very like five o'clock news way, they'll either at least the first time or even multiple times like consistently remind you of who is speaking. And Morris doesn't do that here in a way that I think, uh, like I don't want to say the other is is necessarily like disrespectful of the audience's intelligence. It's just it's a it's a narrative style that is very common and and it's just what people most often well, do. But I think in this it it also it draws you in in a different way because you're you're listening to people talk. And I mean, he has that camera set up too, to where they're they're talking at the camera, right? Like um, as opposed as opposed to the over the shoulder two shot, right? Um, well, and like, it, it just it's very of, it's very personally engaging. A perfect example of what you're talking about: um, Randall Adams' defense attorney, Edith James. Yeah, she talks about bringing in Dennis White, the other defense attorney, because he'd never he'd done he's a really successful trial lawyer, right? And she says Dennis White, and then. He and cuts, cuts to, to Dennis White talking and goes, I first joined the Randall Adams case. So you have to infer that's Dennis White. You yeah, have the, to the, the, there are a few of those, I mean, there are those handoffs, but there are some of the others where you have to, like, wait a little while before you get a name to put. Like, you'll know who someone's, what someone's role is fairly quickly from what they're saying. It's like, oh, right. this is one of the detectives or this is a judge or, or something like that. But um, I don't know. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of... Um, there's a context, there's a contextual sort of like awareness you have to have. Yeah. And I feel like there's a there's a certain uh intimacy almost uh, as a as a viewer that that like it, it feels more like that like you're a part of this conversation um which I feel like is is obviously very intentional from the way that the the camera setup he uses and all of that is very 
uh, I think it makes it so much easier for the audience to to take up that role of like listening and sorting these different conversations. Right. Well, you're you're aware of uh, Elle Morris's invention, right? Yeah, yeah. I c- I couldn't remember what it was called, but I've seen. I remember seeing it in a, a special feature. On the Inter- Intellitron. Yeah. I, oh, that was it. I knew it was something that had like a sci-fi <laughs> suffix that I loved. For those of you listening who don't know this, Elle Morris invented a camera. Basically based off the teleprompter. Yeah, he, he essentially that, invented iPad cameras before they existed in that, exactly. like, the camera. It had a screen with him speaking his interview questions from it, and they just, they talked to the camera screen. It's also how he keeps them a little bit off balance, too, because it's a little bit weird because people aren't used to looking directly at the camera because they're used to being told to look off to the side. Yeah, yeah, because that's, you know, that's the big no-no in film is don't, right. don't look at the camera. The camera's not here. So what you have with all Elmore's documentaries is... People talking directly at the camera. Yeah, they're, they're and, not talking to an unseen interviewer. They are talking to you. And so you get there is a sort of personal feel to it, a sort of intimacy that is allowed. And with the sort of contextual awareness you have to have, it really feels less like a documentary and more like you're being let in on this guy working a case. Yeah, it's... Uh... I don't have a lot to compare it to. It's just it's it's something that's so strikingly its own thing. Well, uh, we I reviewed for this podcast in a review. We talked about OJ Made in America. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. And there's a lot of like similar stuff, but they don't look directly at the camera. There's a lot they they're off to slightly talking to the side or, mm. or the position to the point where there's a lot of negative space on the side. Morris doesn't do that. They're directly sitting directly in front of the camera, and they are talking to you. The only person who doesn't is David Harris. Yeah. And that's not because he's not positioned that way. It's because David Harris doesn't look you in the eye. Yeah. And that's like, it's it's a little, but he, yeah, it's, it's such a little thing, but he's very just like, sort of, he's almost always sort of slumped over and looking off to the side and, uh, well, Like whenever yeah. he talks, he'll look away and scratching his chin. But um, no, uh, it is, I find it, I, it, it didn't dawn on me until watching it this last time. The only two people not really shocked, because there are some people like as they interview, as the interviews go along, who start to realize, I don't think he did it. I think maybe it was someone else. Yeah. The only two people who don't express any kind of like shock of this might be are the only two black people they happen to interview. Yeah. In fact, it's the black one of the black interviewers who goes, "You know what? That's why the lady, the lady justice is blindfolded and her scales are tipped because all the deals are made in the hallway." Yeah. There's no justice in the system. That was such a that was such a good line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I mean, also like the 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 one uh, I forget like there was the 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 guy who was the husband of the the woman who just like really wanted to be a witness and all like yes. uh and, and like there's you see so, like such stark like there's some really interesting sort of race and class stuff going on in in those 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 people who come in later as witnesses in that he was very much like let's not get involved with this this isn't let's nope well uh, you bring in class because the one lady who basically said she was lying was the landlord yeah, <laughs> and basically said to an effect, you never, know, you know, always those people are always lying. Yeah, <laughs> and 
and you know exactly what she means, even though she never says it. Clearly, A, she's racist, and B, (laughs) she has opinions about white people who have, who are romantically or sexually involved with people who aren't white. Yeah. Like, it's it's behind the scenes, but I mean, especially, like, in in those characters' uh, relationships and discussions of one another, and also in the discussions of of things in Vider generally, like, we, that's, I I feel like where those things start to come to the fore the most. Yes. When the the, uh, defense attorney, Dennis White, goes to Vider to look up on David Harris, because David Harris is showing up all over this case, and the more they look at it, David Harris has all the means and opportunity while Randall Adams has none of this. But and there was Adams even that is... one there was that one just perfect, like cringy line that we still hear in other contexts today. It's like, well we don't want to ruin a young man's life. Exactly. <laughs> oh God. Even like even having seen this movie, I think this is like my third or fourth time watching it. Every time it's still just God, that's raw. Oh. Like, we don't want to destroy this young man's life i.e you know convict the guilty man right <laughs> which he's guilty so the system should be and what's fascinating is not that the system failed in this movie it's every single system within the system failed right the and it's and i mean it's not system. just the uh, it's not just the official system either but also just that community idea of well this is a this is a young person who deserves to be protected from this like that's yeah. <laughs> Therefore, we shouldn't, you know, be honest with him or, you know, hold him accountable to anything, even though clearly he has priors compared to Randall Adams, no priors. Right. This this person who is not of our community is deserving of punishment more than a person who, yeah, probably did this. Well, and what's, what's, what's weird is I, that's the thing. Randall Adams isn't of the community. He's a drifter. But he's apparently their drifter. <laughs> well, no, he's a drifter. And David Harris lives in Vida, Texas. Mm. So he's a Texas boy. He's from Vida, and Vida is on the outlier of Dallas, so he's close enough. Randall Adams, he's an interloper. Right. He's just showing up for a job, and then he's going to leave the state. And so in their mind, it's like, we don't want to destroy a young man's life, one of our young men. Right. This out-of-towner, though, coming in and taking jobs <laughs> even though he's white there's still that yeah of, he's not one of us well he he doesn't have roots so right. why doesn't he have roots like well, yeah just the immediate like well i now have room to judge well not only that but like the sort of like judgment of people who don't want to belong to a community because it's implied that he's a drifter he's fine being a drifter he just likes roaming around yeah, and it's not like he's, and he's not even an unemployed drifter. He, he like, goes to a place, finds a job, and does his job. <laughs> but yeah, just like there are so many, like just a, a lot of just societal questions brought up in in who is is deserving of not not just judgment but punishment well, in the choices that people are making. <laughs> the the communal system failed. The police investigation system failed. The police system failed simply because, and understandably, there was a murder of a cop and they had to clear because in Dallas, Texas, you do not close, you do not leave a murdered cop case open. Yeah. And so Uh, the question of, the question of like the, the case needs to be closed 
as soon as possible and then like you know in parentheses by any means necessary exactly uh like the the implication of so many of these uh failures and how sort of self-aware they are in in some ways about it like you said like they're not there weren't a huge amount of people that were shocked uh that that adams probably didn't do it well, not only that, but like the and then the the justice system fails within the courthouse. The sentencing, the uh, the psychiatry system failed when they just, sent in yeah, just... the sh- the sham of a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that kind of worked, it still ultimately failed, was the Supreme Court because in Texas, like okay, in that case, it's not a capital offense, and we're going to just make it life so we don't have to release. So him. now we don't have to retry him, and he can just stay in prison. Yeah, and like this uh, poor bastard never caught a break. The only thing that worked was Elmore's making a documentary. Right, and and yeah, just the uh, Elmore's had to go a team on this. And and that's like the the grimness of that reality is just hard to to grapple with thinking because it's. Most people are not going to get Errol Morris coming in to record their cases. And what it all hinges on is the sort of, like, I forget the lady, but the banality of evil of David Harris. Yeah, the, the, the uh, Hannah Arndt's banality of evil. Yeah, because um. David Harris looks like a pretty chill guy. Yeah, he's super chill looking. Like, he, he just looks like this uh, easygoing, like, young guy. He and, looks like and, a stoner, but nothing major. Right. In one of the cases that uh, Cottrell talks about, after the Vandal Adams case, one of the things is David <laughs> David Harris shot a guy. He killed a man. Yeah. A man whose house he broke into and then whose wife he kidnapped. And when they arrested him, Cottrell says, like, David, I know it's you. I got the gun. We got the witness. The lady's saying it's you. You killed the man. I have you dead to rights. Like, yeah, that man was crazy. He came at yeah, him with a gun. Yeah, that, like, the... <laughs> The straight-facedness of that is just... And the I can't, like, like, David, you broke into his house and kidnapped his wife. I know, but still, you don't come at a person with a gun. You're going to get yourself <laughs> killed. <laughs> oh, yeah, just the... And then... I... Yeah, like, at the end of the documentary, Morris has a, it's a shot in the middle of the screen of a tape recorder. You see the reels playing. Like the real yeah. system that has failed time and time again of a tape as he talks to Rand, uh, David uh, uh, Harris and it goes, do you think Randall Adams is guilty? No. Who do you think put him there? <laughs> Probably the person who fingered him, who told, uh, told the cops that he did it. Do you think Randall Adams would be there if he would have given you a ride? Like if he would have like hung out with you? If he if he'd let you if he'd let you stay with like him yeah, and brother instead of yeah he let you stay of... the night because yeah. David Harris wanted to spend the night with Randall Adams and Adams was like no I don't I don't want to and so basically yeah. it's revealed but, that when they do the lineup and, and he and, <laughs> the, oh, Harris is the and, one who pointed at Adams <laughs> yeah and the thing that's amazing well the thing that's amazing about that that last tape recorder thing too is just the the audacity because uh, like he he essentially admits it's like nah he he wouldn't be there if uh if if he had you know given a young like, man a place to stay at night he never and, and says like, he me done, he says a young man yeah he he dis like he distances it uh, and even then just like 
all the other things that from the the interviews that we heard before then, like he, you know, he'd gone to the movies with him. He'd offered to help find uh, find Harris a job. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I'll talk to my boss, and and still not enough because he doesn't get a place to stay because he has and to even go then, all the way back to. And Vida. even then, like, <laughs> there's no way. Well, I mean, actually, there is a way because if he'd stayed there, he wouldn't have. He literally wouldn't have been out on the road to shoot the cop. But if I I have this this image in my head of like even if he had and he had still shot the cop, he still would have bled. Like nothing will ever have been enough. (laughs) Speaking of everything, speaking of failure of systems, speaking of Hmm. the banality of evil, speaking of innocence wrongly, uh, innocent people wrongly convicted, and speaking of conspiracies and Werner Herzog. (laughs) There is Jack Reacher. <laughs> oh, I could I could listen to Werner Herzog speak forever. Alonzo um, Duvalde is a critic I adore, and he does a really good Werner Herzog impersonation. I've tried, like I've tried for years to get a Herzog impersonation going, and I I can't do it. It's heartbreaking to me. Uh, but of course, Herzog himself is a background presence in this, so we should probably <laughs> shut up about him. <laughs> Oh, we would never shout for Herzog. Of course, but but Herzog, in the, he's like he's like Wells in the Third Man. Yeah, he's there, but he's not there until the end. <laughs> I just had a thought that I think Werner Herzog might be the modern day Orson Welles to our generation in terms of like how we view him. I'm fine with this. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay, before we get on a tangent. Jack Reacher, 2012, written and directed by Christopher McCoy, adapted oh, by great. a series of can, novels. Can we say, actually, can we say the intermittently great Christopher McCoy? <laughs> yes, we can. Because he also wrote, he didn't direct, he wrote Usual Suspects. He also he also wrote one of my favorite, uh, part of the sort of recent resurgence of excellent sci-fi movies, Edge of Tomorrow. Yes, he did. He also had a hand in The Mummy. Which, yeah, he was one of the, and I feel like this says a lot about that movie, one of the six people credited on Screenplay or Story. <laughs> he was brought in by uh, Cruz. No show. Oh, oh that, that makes a lot of sense, considering all the times they've worked together. Because he's yeah. also, like, Macquarie's worked on Mission Impossible, and uh, I feel like there's another Cruz thing in there with him. Well, um, not only remember. that, but all the good Tom Cruise stuff have All the yeah. times that Tom Cruise has worked with Macquarie, it's worked. Mm. To varying degrees. And also, McQuarrie uh, wrote and directed. Um, uh, oh hell, I'm, I'm blanking. Uh, Way the gun. Yeah. Oh, he did. I didn't. I, I don't have that down. Oh yeah, he was. He was both, if I recall, writer and director. Which is Way the just, Gun uh, is an interesting movie. Uh, Not 100 percent successful, but it's kind of fascinating. No. But it had like it, it has like all of its weaknesses. I would argue it has such a cast that they they carry it past it just with gusto. Well, and speaking of cast, um, McQuarrie has a, with Jack Reacher. He got he has a much better cast than you would normally get for a movie like this. Yeah, because uh, again, like this movie is like this movie is a, a movie that I am surprised is like an A list celebrity movie because this feels like like it should it should be a a move. I, I don't even like it. If, it feels like a movie that's almost like a TV movie that got to have all A-list people, like, working on it. Well, here's the thing. Uh, Lee Child, who writes the Jack Reacher novels, and this is based on one shot. Yeah. The Jack Reacher character is the most pared-down type of character. He's a, he doesn't... He, he's a ghost. He doesn't yeah. belong to well, anything. He, is, he just hitchhikes uh, I don't, his I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but it is a term that is popular amongst the, uh, the tabletop role-playing game community. 
okay. to describe what uh, what player characters essentially are when you think about it is that murder hobos. <laughs> Jack Reacher is a murder hobo. He will show up in your town and he will kill his way to the truth. Essentially, uh, that's what he does. He shows up. Oh, there's a crime. I don't want to be involved. Oh, no. You've committed some <laughs> not really important th- either crime against me or now you've offended my sensibilities and now I'm involved and I will bring down hell and vengeance upon you all. Yeah. Oh, and uh, and one of the things I'll say about this this film and, and the way that it's set up is is in the 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 converse of Thin Blue Line, where we come to understand, like we see a lot of reenactments early on, but we come to understand what the most likely course of events are as we go. Right. This takes, and I'll and I'll play to the fact that I've known you for years here, the Columbo approach. It does, so does. And and we see the crime, the person who actually did it, all like we don't know why. Right. Uh, and there's even there's even a point where. <laughs> I, 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 as I said, I'd never seen Jack Reacher before, but there is essentially—he doesn't say it exactly—but there is a one more question point where Jack Reacher is starting to leave, right. and he stops, and he like turns and asks the one more question out the door thing. And I was like, if Sherman doesn't bring up Columbo, I'm going to, and then I decided to anyway. That's <laughs> I'm not going to. I have no problem with someone else bringing in Columbo. Um, real quick, um, after describing what Jack Reacher is, uh, the movie. Uh, is basically about a man named James Barr who is accused of killing like five to six people. Uh, as a, he, James Barr is an ex-sniper, and six people is basically, sadly, reminiscent of a lot of mass shootings we've had. Yeah, it's, it's a very, the, the sort of, as far as it's set up to appear in the movie, it's a very, the, the person who snaps and goes to the bell tower type shooting. Right, and for, so there's the trigger warning for those at home. Be aware that it does open with a mass shooting. Yeah. And, like, there are some punches pulled, but there are some punches that are not pulled. You do see some, like, you do see some red mist, as it were. Yeah. And what happens is he gets to, uh, the cops eventually find James Barr, who, as we see, is not the guy we saw shooting. And they bring him in, and they basically interrogate him, and he just writes down, get me Jack Reacher. And that's actually the only that's actually the only interaction we get from him until the end of the movie because by the time Jack shows up, the man has been beaten into a coma. Right, and, and Jack Reacher is a minimalist character, and this movie, even though it's like oh, slightly over two hours, there's not a wasted moment in it. Yeah, like, uh, it is a it's a really tightly put together film. Um, it is also funny in a way that I'm I, glad like, it I was, was. Otherwise, I don't know if I could have handled it. Yeah, I think, again, like, I can't, I, I overuse this as a descriptor in this case, but it just struck me as all the best things about pulp fiction. Um, well, you know, you got the, your, the genre, your, your the bad guys. Are, yeah, you're, you're, well, yeah, pulp fiction, the genre. So, uh, the, the bad guys are the worst possible monsters. The good guy <laughs> is just this, like, he's like a cross between Philip Marlowe and the man with no name. Uh, he, he knows he, everything, <laughs> and he's like, and he's like infamous. You get that that like thing with uh, with Gunny later in the movie when he has him do the the sniper challenge. To, <laughs> he's uh, like a myth. Like, he shows up, and some people know the myth, and some people don't. <laughs> well, like what's, what's uh, really great is the people. Go ahead. 
Uh, I was just gonna say, like people people who have heard of him, like are are in awe either positively or negatively, and P- and anybody else is just like amazed at how unknown he is, like because he's a goat. Well, he's not okay. in the system, and all these other things. <laughs> Getting back to the synopsis. <laughs> After Jack Reacher comes in, he's hired by James Spar's <laughs> defense attorney, Helen Roden, played by Rosamund Pike, and she's like, "I need hmm. you to." Uh, to testify for Bart's like, I'm not going to fucking do that. I came here to kill him. Yeah, and he hates him. He's <laughs> like, why? And he basically tells a story about how when in Iraq, James Barr, who trained as a sniper, never got to kill anybody. Like he was on over, yeah, yeah, he was on Overwatch. He was, yeah, he was a guy, he was the guy who was out there with his scope trained on, you know, people right. every day, all day. And never took a shot in like five years. And, he, and then the uh, the order comes, it's time to go home, and he just snaps. And he goes up and kills five people coming out of a building. And it turns out that he accidentally killed five people oh, who were leaving what's called... This is the quote. Yeah, speaking of trigger warnings. <laughs> and this is also a trigger warning. A, a rape rally. And since they, the army wants to just cover all this up, they go, you know what? We'll just call this even, and you can go Yeah, home. he... Like, he accidentally murdered... Well, I mean, he meant to murder people, but the people he murdered happened well, to be was. the worst monsters. <laughs> and they're just the like... the people he murdered were part of a private security firm that were working with the army. Yeah. Like, they, they weren't... They weren't, uh, you know, they, they were private security. They, they were rapists. Right. Like, it was just the... It was a perfect storm of, we're gonna sweep this under the rug. Right. And uh, so Richard says, the and... next time you fuck up, I'm going to kill you. So he shows up and finds out that Barr's been put into a coma while he's in prison. And basically, he starts working on the case and starts to realize Barr is actually innocent. And then he starts to unravel the conspiracy, which is part for the course for Jack Reacher. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I get the feeling... Like they're, they're, I can see a pattern even having only seen this one story, which is adapted from a novel. <laughs> but I, I still like. I, I feel like from watching this movie, like I could probably pitch some Jack Reacher stories pretty well. <laughs> I'm going to give you a plot, but, and that's not, a, and that's not necessarily a. Oh, so that's not, and that's not a criticism either. Like that's right. that's kind of what this kind of pulp crime fiction is meant to do. Like they're, you know, the. That was why this sort of thing was such a, a boom industry for a while. You could churn out these stories that, while they had similar beats, would still, like, be super fun and engaging. Lee Child books are, like, the absolutely pulpy as fuck. And yet they're so well-written. Like, I've read interviews with other authors. It's like, oh, my God, I can't wait for the new Lee Child book. And they're not, yeah, well, you and don't I- need to read it again. You read it once and you're done. But that one time is, oh, my God, that was amazing. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm actually... A little afraid to look into any of these books because I know I'll just fall in, like I did with the 87th Precinct books. <laughs> there's, o- there's only one thing I don't like about the books, so it's what keeps me from reading them a bunch together. Yeah, and it's actually one thing I really liked about the movie. In the movie, Helen Mildon, played by Rosamund Pike, and Jack Reacher, who's Tom Cruise, there's never once like yes. there's clear attraction to him, but there's no but there's romantic no... or sexual relationship. This is purely professional. This is just who did this. Yeah, not even, not even a, like I was worried as he was getting ready to leave at the end that they were going to throw in something dumb, and it but, was just nope. In the books, that's not the case. In the books, ah. no matter is he also, what, is they he will also bend a over backwards to have, that... have sex with the, with the with the main woman in the book. Uh, they yeah, will that's... come up with 
there's one and it, oh my god they will come up with absurd scenarios to justify it or make it seem less bad uh, like if the woman is married her husband will be a paraplegic who's in a coma in a military hospital and it'll just be a one time <laughs> thing to comfort each other it's absurd and that's like a re- and uh, every book and so I can't read them together because those appointments like I can't no I can't overlook this what the fuck is your problem it's too, everything it's else too is too trashy <laughs> it's too trashy it's too misogynistic and it's everything else is gold uh, but Macquarie looked at that. It's like, how about I just take that out? Yeah, and that's that's <laughs> oh, that's a shame because that's one of the things I loved about this movie. Because I like I was I was waiting for that ball to drop, <laughs> well, and it I, didn't happen. And I was so like I was just pleasantly surprised by the end that it's just like no, they just. And I mean, that's not to say that like when Jack Reacher walks across the bar when he goes to a bar in the middle of the movie, like. Every woman he passes, not just the one who's, like, looking for him for plot reasons, but, like, every woman he passes looks at him like, well, like Tom Cruise is walking past them. Well, and Uh, part of the joke is Jack Reacher himself in the book is, like, six foot five and 250 pounds of pure muscle. And every time, like, every time Tom Cruise is cast as someone who is supposed to be, like, a giant Adonis (laughs) is always funny, you know, in a meta way. So, of course, you get Tom Cruise, and yet Tom Cruise does, and this is, like, one of his better like one of his best roles in the later part of his career yeah this is i i feel like this is a real like you, you know who that you, you know who else would have been great in this role i think in some yeah. ways young tom cruise <laughs> not middle not middle tom cruise like there's a there's a chunk there where he wouldn't have worked for this but <laughs> well part of what makes this movie work is I think because we mentioned Way of the Gun and we mentioned some of the other movies like Edge of Tomorrow, McCoy is very good at taking a genre and working within a genre while not deconstructing it, but playing with certain tropes. Yeah, not like not like going quite full Edgar Wright where where it's a parody that just also respects the material, but it's right. it's just a it's a much more straight faced like it it it's, it's honestly who's just like, a who knows movie. Poker. And yet, same time, knows how to play within the rules of poker with the rules of poker. Like it's it's understood. It, it it does something that I think can become really hard to do when you become familiar with the the structures of a trope and that is, uh, of of the tropes of a genre. And that is to still truly, like naively enjoy it in a way. Well, well that's because one of the things it does is because it's so straight face. Like in the scene between the district attorney who's prosecuting Barr played by, whose name is D.A. Roden, played by Richard Jenkins, who is mm. Helen Roden's father. Right, like and that, that extra detective level of, like, soap opera Played by drama. David Oyelowo. When David Oyelowo is reading off Jack Reacher's list of medals, <laughs> listing off how he only has a bank account, and it gets paid in monthly, gets paid in monthly for a pension, it gets withdrawals by, from, from, from Western like, Western unions. unions, so you There's can't no way track to trace it. Him, and... Rodin's like, that's impossible. Everyone's faithful. Like, I'm telling you, this guy's a fucking ghost. And like, when he's reading off all these medals, he even, Oyelowo goes, Dis- Distinctive Service Medal of Action? Had to look that one up. <laughs> it's like, they even acknowledge <laughs> this is a bit absurd. It's like, well, how the hell do you find this guy? My guess is he finds you. Sir, there's a Jack Reacher here to see you. And they just give each other a look like, what the hell? Right, like, and I, I cracked up laughing when that happened, but, like, not, like, that was actually one of the first moments in this, because it's real early in the movie, but where I was, like, 
and not I was laughing at it, but not in a mocking way. I was like, oh, this movie's having fun. Yeah, and like later on, when Oyelowo introduces Jack Reacher to Helen Rowden, goes Helen Rowden, like the like Duchess like, Attorney Rowden, she's a daughter. Oh, oh, it's quite a story, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> and then as Oyelowo is leaving, Reacher, weird to meet you, likewise. It's like. <laughs> like, it admits that this is weird. Like... This is not normally something I'm I'm used to as a detective. <laughs> <laughs> or even just, like, in terms of one of my other favorite just, like, moments of, of kind of pure just... I, I want to say silliness, but again, I don't want to... Like, I, I don't mean any of this derisively because it's just a very enjoyable movie. But, like, after he... And actually, my my uh, my significant other and I were were talking about the scene where he goes and uh, find tracks down Sandy at the <laughs> auto parts store, and and we actually had a lot of sympathy for the guy like who was working at the counter because he did everything right. Right, he just happened to do because uh, like Reacher, this which creepy like Jack Reacher comes in and insists on talking to her and won't say who he is, and the guy's just like, "I'm not telling you she's here. I'm calling the cop." Like he starts to call the cops and all this other stuff. And what I love about that scene is that there are consequences for that because that's why Reacher gets is able to be so easily framed for uh, for Sandy, you know, dying later. Right. Uh, is that like that whole scene? plays out in a very realistic way that if you think about the perception of what Jack Reacher is doing, it is the, like, he's behaving like a creepy, abusive, like, boyfriend or stalker, well, and, and, and everyone responds accordingly. And that's why the movie kind of works, is there's a sort of realistic reaction to things. Yeah. It, the, oh, but, the, but like, the story's absurd, the movie isn't realistic in the slightest, but in... Perfect example, Robert Duvall, by the way, Robert Duvall's in this movie, and he plays a gun range owner, and there's a point where, like, Reacher is at the hideout where the bad guys are, they have Helen as a hostage, because that's how the story goes, Yeah. and Duvall shows up, and he goes, did you bring, did you bring a gun, and he just hands him a knife. <laughs> and he goes, "Are you kidding me? It's like just because I saw I shot you, just because I saw you shoot two years ago, doesn't mean I'm gonna let you kill some assholes with my gun." <laughs> right. It's like a very realistic. Like, look, I know you're on the level. I'm not giving you my gun because you want to kill people. I don't know what this situation yeah, and, and, is. <laughs> and he like, and he's not gonna shoot unless they start shooting. And it's just all this like, yeah, I buy that. Um... <laughs> well, not even that. It's just like. He like he acts in a certain way, and then you find out he has a camera, and it's like you know one of these gun nuts is probably going to kill you once they find out they ha- you have a security system. And it's like <laughs> I have the security system because one of those gun nuts is likely to kill me. <laughs> right, and it's just there's a there's an earnestness to it that I really like. I think makes it just is part of what makes it work so well. Well, like and he, and like even when he's fighting the five guys and he's acting cocky. <laughs> Normally, that's not a thing that happens. So uh, you sort of understand why the guy's like, oh, yeah, he, it's five against one. No, I, I think I'm good. <laughs> okay. You're crazy. You're, I, hired, I was hired by some guy to kill you, to beat you up. This is going to be easy because you're clearly insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's, that's another thing. Like, so many of the ways that this movie plays with its tropes, and the fight scene, I think, is a great example of this, like, really lets the air out of, like, it, yeah, he's cocky and self-assured in the way that, it's not necessarily the way that Jack Reacher acts, because Jack Reacher is still, like, the the untouchable hero character, dude, even though he does take a lot of good knocks. Well, at the same um, time, the, he takes a lot of the knocks, slap but he stick, keeps telling people, don't do it. Yeah, well, the, the, the outright slapstick comedy of the scene 
in the bathroom with the bat and the crowbar is <laughs> solid. But, like, the street fight scene really, I think, is a great commentary on something that drives me crazy in even really good movies. Logan is the most recent movie that is guilty of one of the most, one of just the most ridiculous things. And it's it's most egregious in video games where you're playing and going through and just killing the crap out of, you know, nameless mook after nameless mook. But, like, the scene at the beginning of Logan where Wolverine just claw murders his way through what are ostensibly just regular hubcap thieves. Right. And, like, after the first one of your friends is claw murdered in front of you, I think that's when you leave. (laughs) And, like, uh, and the fact that, that in Jack Reacher, like, that plays out in the way that it's like, oh, no, yeah, we're leaving. We're, like... They think about staying for a minute, and then they're like, nope. Well, and what's also another thing is Richard tells you what's going to happen before it happens. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he knows exactly how this will play In out. In fact, the movie even does that, like, throughout. Like, they will tell you, but, like, so the, this is what's going to happen. And then the situation happens almost exactly, and the comedy comes from the fact that Jack Reacher knows this. He is an XMP. And the fact is, using Tom Cruise because he doesn't look like a six foot eight, two 250-pound man full of muscle... He's able to take right. you off guard because this tiny man, while good looking, is acting like he knows everything. Oh shit, he knows everything. Yeah. Oh, and then like the that's even essentially sort of the the almost punchline, I guess one would say, at the end of the movie, like when Barr wakes up, and again, Jack Reacher knew exactly how Barr would have set up the shooting had he been the <laughs> one to actually do it. Right. And uh, and. Uh, so yeah, like it, I, I think that's that is a good point though. Like I, I think this movie could not possibly have worked as well if they cast someone who looked like Jack Reacher is supposed to look. It, it would have, but it would have been a completely different movie. Yeah, I, well, it, it could have worked. It could have easily worked as well, but not in the same way. It would yeah, have been, I think it probably would have been like it looked like an old school B movie in terms of like this is something yeah. like, kind of like The Guest with Dan Stevens. You know who I would you know who I would go with if if this were if this were the eighties movie that I would like it to have been? Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. That's why we're friends. <laughs> um real quick. Not just because like I will I will watch Dolph Lundgren do anything. <laughs> by the way, was it you who who pointed me to Dolph Lundgren's Snapchat, by the way? Yes, it was. Because I don't think I could ever thank you enough for that. By the way, people listening, Dolph Lundgren has a Snapchat, and you need to go look at this. It is. Like, he is a treasure of a human being. Because <laughs> it's all which is basically him doing positive, like, almost like Stuart Small stuff of, like, I'm good enough, <laughs> I'm talented enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. Yeah, it's it's like I, I follow Dolph Lundgren Snapchat for the same reason that I follow Andrew WK on Twitter because sometimes I just want to hear about how great partying is, <laughs> <laughs> just constantly. <laughs> well, and one of the one of the things that works is Reacher is so efficient. It's because he, even though he's not of the system, he used to be, and he knows how the system works, and so he's able to fuse the knowledge of how to work outside the system and within the system to a devastating effect. Yeah, and like it's it's interesting because a lot of I don't know like uh, I it's a it's a character model that I just because of the way that that culture has gone I've become more and more suspicious of right. like the the lone man outsider who sees through all the bullshit like the something that's very like if you take it too far it becomes the sort of like Ayn I'm Rand, a and I've taken the like, hill yeah that that thing and I feel like this avoids 
going too far in that direction because it's it's not exactly the like he I don't know it's uh, the the problem is I'm I'm suspicious of my own enjoyment of that in some ways because it could just be because it's done so well that I'm like no it's fine Jack Reacher is awesome right uh, well like I said but I feel the like books, this, there's that one issue <laughs> yeah and I, but I feel like this this doesn't necessarily lionize it completely because we do see that that Jack Reacher doesn't really have a lot in his life no he doesn't like he, he has nothing and it's like they're pulling like can, no friends yeah. no loved ones. Like and yeah, he's he's the the ultimate badass and all this other stuff. But like the it, and it doesn't like foreground this a lot. But that you do see something of the cost of of him not having connections because he does come off as very like social. He has no social graces, but but they don't lionize it the way that like Stephen Moffat loves to lionize a lack of social exactly. grace. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we're go, we're gonna have to wrap this up. We're out of time. Uh, real oh, quick, Werner yeah. Herzog is the ultimate bad guy. Oh God, yes. Um, and the, see, see this movie I, like, for nothing he's, else. He's Robert a... Duvall shows up, and Werner Herzog shows up. This is never going to happen again, folks. No, and Werner Herzog essentially like he's a Bond villain. Like <laughs> he is so evil. Right, and he's even got like a hmm? he's even got like a weird eye. It's God, I love Werner Herzog. Um, <laughs> yeah, the weird eye. He has no fingers. Is amazing. Anyhow, <laughs> do you have any social media that people can follow you on, Fred? Uh, I, I will eventually. I, I, I've i been hiding and lurking on social media for years. So right now, you could find me if you looked hard enough, but I avoid it. Okay. Uh, maybe next maybe next time I will have a, a more active social media presence. <laughs> you can find me, as per usual, at jshermanfishing at Twitter or on my Facebook at Jeremiah O. Sherman. I have an Instagram uh, under the same name as Facebook. Um... I have a movie of the week that I do for the Facebook page. I'm probably going to start doing some stuff for the Twitter. Um, we're going to be re- uh, retooling the podcast as it goes along. So if you're have, if you not happy with it, don't worry. Neither am I. We're going to try to work out the bugs here now. Um, no, one is, no one is less happy with it than the people who make it, probably. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> be sure to follow the other podcasts at the Fundamentals. We have Ladies First. We have the Fundamentalists. Uh, Unabashed Book Snobbery. <laughs> and we have another one coming or is that it that's it for now uh, make sure to review and subscribe to us at iTunes that's how uh, that's how we get noticed that's how we move up in the search ratings um, that's all for now uh, Thad say, say goodbye uh, goodbye farewell Alvita Zane etc <laughs> alright everyone have a good one